Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Toutes les filles se retournent sur lui. Mais moi, ça m'épate pas. Welcome to Romare Cast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Sean Senevaratna. And I'm Sean Senevaratna. Wait, Sean! <laughs> you didn't update the script. Another, another Sean, snafu in the script. There's two Sean Senevaratnas on this episode. Double Sean. Uh, no, I'm Liam Billingham. Today's episode is a, we're not talking about a, well, we're not talking about a solo film. Today's episode is a reflection on the three Summer of Romare films that we've already covered. The Aviator's Wife, The Four Adventures of Mirabelle and Renette, Renette and Mirabelle, excuse me, I keep doing that, and Boyfriends and Girlfriends, all part of the Metrograph series that is currently streaming on the website. And we're going to use these three films to discuss the topic of what is Romarian. Yeah, this kind of came about because as we were looking at these three movies we watched as part of Summer of Romare, we always felt they kind of fell into a certain other genre, right? You know, I wouldn't call them like uh, dramas at all, but Aviator's Wife, we said, kind of felt like a romantic comedy. You felt it felt kind of like a detective story, right? An existential so we had, detective drama. An, yes. an existential detective drama. My favorite with, kind of movie. While we're on yeah, the subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's a, ooh, that's a whole other season of oh, a different show. Oh, my God. Show. Oh, yeah. my God. The, yeah, my dream. <laughs> my, dream um, pod, my dream podcast. <laughs> I, thought, I thought this was your dream podcast. This is... You were always working towards our dream podcast and <laughs> podcasting. And so this is, this is my dream. Ooh, I love you. I love you. Let's... Uh, so with Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle, we kind of have the sitcom, right? Yes. Um, and then Boyfriends and Girlfriends, we have this screwball comedy with all these like miscommunications, these overlaps. Mistaken identities. Mistaken identities, um, figuring out your identities, and all through these adventures of like all centered around love and life. Um, But all of these movies kind of have this kind of genre component, but they wouldn't be genre movies. Um, And we tried to come up with some other terms. You know, I remember us using the word verite at some point. Um, We used, uh, at one point I had thought neorealist. And these words don't mm. quite get, that's, mm. they're not quite right, right? Like, what, what is wrong about those words? We use those, some of that language, but it's not quite what gets to what makes these movies what they are. And why is that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. There's a really, really broad generalization that I think is worth making when it comes to talking about movies. And, and forgive me if this is like, you know, feels like it's a little crawling, you know, a little navel gazy but i think that like <laughs> language is always insufficient at describing mm-hmm. a work of art in every context you know like it's it's you know we're meant to like behold and experience art and i think descriptions of art and talking about art and criticizing art are a, are a particularly postmodern kind of idea in terms mm-hmm. of how we think about these things so i think that like part of what you're getting at is like when we try to analyze art, we have to use language that puts it mm-hmm. into certain categories. And, and this is the sort of navel-gazy part of it. Like, that's a very obvious point. But I think that the language falls short because, especially with um, 
filmmaking that isn't necessarily aiming at a genre or a or a specific type of goal and in fact is just a reflection of the kind of movies that this particular filmmaker mm-hmm. wanted to make we work very hard to label them but i will say that and this will lead into our next discussion that this attempt to categorize frame reflect on is one of the great things that happened to cinema in the in the, in its you know second stage because people started to talk about movies in a legitimate way and reflect about them. And it's brought about, you know, huge advancements in how we talk about art and how we talk about movies. And none of that would be possible, that kind of critique, without Cahier du Cinema, which is the great French uh, system or system of crit magazine, really, about movies that began publishing, I believe, in the late 30s and was sort of the second generation of which started in the 50s and was run by Eric Romer, at least yeah. to start. Am I getting my history right? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, started by Andre Bazan. Right. Um, uh, we'll have to double check the years. Um, I was thinking maybe it was the 40s, but, you know, it could yeah, it could be the 30s, but started by uh, Andre Bazan. And then Eric Romer took over as editor-in-chief um, during the period in the 60s. Um, and uh, through this... Uh, film magazine um we had francois truffaut's article on uh the auteur right um uh, or s- initially a certain tendency in french cinema uh what he had sort of noticed at the time um which then developed into theories of the director as an auteur or an author author so an author so what do we, um we're not going to get into the history of the auteur theory there's a lot of uh people that are proponents of the auteur theory. There are a lot of people that are detractors of the auteur theory, you know, the belief that, well, everyone is involved in making the movie, so how does one give credit to one person? Or who do we decide who is the one that receives the credit of this? But um, how would you define very simply what is an auteur? What is an auteur to you? Well, I think this came up in an earlier episode, which is... um... I had a film professor, Antonio Tibaldi, who once said that everyone on a crew is doing their job. The director is the one doing the movie. And I think that that, that, that feels as, as close of a sort of least pretentious definition. You know, the auteur theory can get into that sort of like world of like, you know, talking about art in a somewhat rarefied way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's best for me personally, you know, this is a show as much about production as it is about critique. And I think an auteur is the person who's responsible for communicating the tone, style, and goals of the movie, if we can use goals, feelings that the movie is, feelings and ideas that the movie is meant to convey. It's their job to make sure that that is being realized and working Mm -hmm. in close collaboration with whoever happens to be on the crew, who is listening to the director, whatever, auteur of the film to realize that vision. So they're the one that's sort of there to do the systems check to make sure that what is being created is the, what is the goal of the film? And, and, you know, most films come, well, films and that, that seem to adhere to a auteur kind of theory are usually films that are written and directed by one person who is Mm -hmm. exploring ideas that they are interested in exploring. Um, I think that's really, auteur really is driven by the creator of a film who usually has written and, is going to direct it. It's not, yeah. it's probably important to say that like the writer of a film, but not the director, that would not be an auteurist piece of cinema necessarily. But I think that immediately by saying that I'm complicating <laughs> that idea, like immediately yeah. upon saying it, that, yeah, that yeah. is not true. So that's when, where yeah. this is slippery, I think. That's where it's slippery. Once it, um, you know, the more one tries to define auteur, the more we find ourselves in these corners where it's like, oh, wait, well, it's not necessarily you have to write and direct because there are lots of people that write and direct, but maybe they don't necessarily feel what is auteurist. Um, and that's another sort of discussion. And then there's also all the directors that direct works written by other uh, screenwriters. So Martin Scorsese, Alfred Hitchcock, Steven you know, these Spielberg. are Steven Spielberg. These are, these are um, directors that could be considered auteurs. And perhaps what it is, is that 
after a certain amount of work gets created, can we notice connections between the works that were created by this singular person, where we're seeing commonalities or we're seeing shared aspects and traits of um, of this director or of this writer or of this actor that unifies a body of work. And maybe that's getting a little closer to how we can assess you know, someone as an auteur. For sure. And I think, you know, I'm trying to think of if someone were to ask me, like, who is an auteur filmmaker? Like, I, <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up Martin Scorsese, because in some ways, he's a very, very obvious choice for this category, both superficially, and then he makes a lot of films about gangsters. And then he also mm-hmm. makes a lot of films about religious figures and about religion in general. Um, but it, And this is not a Martin Scorsese podcast, but you can see thematic resonance in all of his work uh, around history, around um, masculinity, around mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different uh, relationship between men and women, all of these things that that seem to be commonalities in his work, but also not necessarily the writer and the original conceiver of even some of his best right. movies. A lot of the, his best early it's films not always were Paul the Schrader stories. collaboration. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It is... Right. And those movies feel just as much Paul Schrader movies. Like if we were to do the autorist analysis of Paul Schrader, you know, Taxi Driver would very much be a part of Paul, Sh- Paul Schrader's oeuvre as an auteur, um, despite not having directed the movie. I think for me, a very, very obvious example, and, you know, there's 14 episodes devoted to this director further back in the feed when this was a different podcast called Uberbusters, is John Cassavetes, who mm-hmm. to me is kind of the like, poster boy for auteurism um, in that his films are all made kind of in a similar style with a similar crew with a lot of Mm -hmm. similar ideas playing uh, upon them but different variations of a lot of those things I I think he's a great example from a conceiver of the work working with the same crew time and time again and with a certain kind of style that, that is consistent throughout even in his one studio film, there's elements of it that feel like a John Cassavetes awesome. movie. So basically, like, from what you were saying over here, we've you've kind of gotten to some of the core of what one looks at when trying to figure out um, a director's body of work. You know, you talked about thematic resonance in the work of Scorsese. With uh, John Cassavetes, you talked about the, the way in which he made movies and then a certain style sort of um, erupting from this process. So there's a lot of these different factors that one considers. You know, it's not just like a certain visual style. You know, no. it's not just a jump cut or it's not just like, oh, they do tracking shots. Like, I I don't feel that's quite enough, even though that's part of it in terms of like what... <laughs> that's what, <laughs> what film what Twitter would together. tell you auteur theory yeah, is, is that if God. there are similar shots, and not to shit on film Twitter entirely because I'm a, I'm a member of, but I, I think... It's been reduced simple. I, the original, yeah. I think, kind of it gets reduced of, to like, a, like you know, uh, I get these Instagram ads for like, learn how to figure out who is in uh, what directors do. Tarantino, for example, does trunk shots. I'm like, that is not the thing. That, makes, that is not uh, the thing. Makes, well, I think yeah. that that's worth pointing. And then I think we can use this to segue back into Eric Romare. Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of, first of all, this is not a, the thinking of a, this is not a theory put forth by filmmakers. At mm-hmm. least in its original arcation, it is a critical theory. It's a, created yeah. by critics, and I think, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, that this theory sort of started to evolve in a, as a way to discuss the works of Alfred Hitchcock, who, in some ways, whose career was so long. Like I think people don't realize that Alfred Hitchcock made like a movie in 1923. You know, all the way. Yeah. Like he was he yeah. was a filmmaker for so long, um, and you know, part of the original sort of Cahier du Cinema debate like the og film twitter debate was john ford or alfred hitchcock right and mm-hmm. and the using hitchcock a way to a tourism sort of evolved out of the discussion around what makes a hitchcock film a hitchcock film and and right. there are people that viewed him as like a ruthless technician mm-hmm. and and then there were people like romare who viewed him as a filmmaker whose common idea was we gaze at God and God does not gaze back, which may be a discussion for a whole <laughs> yeah. other thought best, but there's a there's an idea there, right? There's right. a there seems to be a simple idea that they felt Hitchcock was reaching right. at that transcended the technique, that transcended the story. It yeah. was the idea that he sat down one day and was like, which is not true. I'm going to make films. 
Right. right. Um, so I guess bef- we it's kind of all this. in post, but it's it's this. Uh, it's imposed. So that's a great way to think yeah, about it's, it. Yeah, it's always like a, yeah a post discussion after the fact. Um, but really, they were concerned with like what made a movie Hitchcockian, what made a movie Hawksian, and what we're going to really be focusing on today is what makes a movie Romarian. Because I really think having seen these three films, that is kind of the only way to describe these movies. Is like. It's a Romarian sitcom. It's a Romarian screwball comedy. It's a, it's Romarian, a Romarian detective story. Detective right? Yeah. That's very good. That's very yeah. good. Um, and yeah, I think what we're trying to do here, there's only one rule to this discussion, if we can say that there's a rule. Um, and that is that we're only going to view it through the lens of the films that we've talked about this podcast. So I've, you know, we both have seen other Romare films, but we're not going to reference, I don't know, My Night at Mods. Mm-hmm. Um, Suzanne's career, La Collection News. We're not going to talk about those films. We're going to sort of build this from the ground up because we, from the films that we've seen, because we want to have the same experience that you've had. So as we exit season one of the first, I almost said as we exit season one of the first season of this podcast, as we exit the first season of this podcast, which we're calling the Summer of Romare, we can have a discussion about what are the qualities that makes a movie Romarian? How can we deepen you know what the way he's perceived and, and what are the mm-hmm. qualities that make his movies uniquely him though i would like to say that this list was put together by my esteemed co-host sean senevaratne and, and we're going to go through these one by one and, and talk about each one as much as is warranted cool um with these uh uh this list of what might make something feel romarian um in why the not context- romare-esque I don't know. I Do you guess like one Romarian could, better? One could say Romare-esque. You know, when I think of like auteurist talk, you know, we describe things as Lynchian. Um, mm. Lynch-esque doesn't have the same bell to it. Then again, Nolan, you would say Nolan-esque and not Nolanian. Um, Nolanian would be Ackerman-esque, yeah. not Ackermanian. Maybe it has yeah. to do with the length of the name. I think the name, like Cheryl Dunyay. Dunyayan, Dunyayesque, you know? Um, I think, yeah. It doesn't it, matter. The doesn't name really will matter. Have, so I'm sure there are people, there are experts in language that could tell us, no, you should use this one instead of that one. But yeah, we can go yeah. with Romarian. It's a I'm, little I'm more a, specific. Yeah. yeah. Hitchcockian, Romarian. Yeah, Hawksian. Godardian. So. Godardian. Truffaut-esque. <laughs> um, so um, one thing that's Bay-ian. important for us to... Bayian, Bayesque. Oh, what are we Bay-ian. going with from like Bayian? I it, this is part of my goal is to just make sure we reference Michael Bay every single week of this podcast. Well, I, I love the phrase Bayhem, and Bay-ham. so like, it is Bayhem. It gets its it gets its own noun. One last one, von Trierian, von Trier esque. Yeah, I think I'd go esque with that. <laughs> this is now the episode <laughs> of the. I just name filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's 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 language, and it's like trying to figure out what is the language in which we talk about this stuff, which is always the the trick with, with Spielbergian. Art. Spielbergian. That and by the right. way, what is the language that we talk that we use to talk about things? Feels like a very Romarian idea, mm-hmm. doesn't yeah, it? How to, yeah, absolutely. It's like the uh, the kind of semantic reasoning behind these very sort of just like core internal beliefs and ideas. This is a Renette and Mirabelle episode. Oh, very good. All right, let's yeah. hear this list. Let's go. Um, so um, with these movies, the one important fact to keep in mind is that they were all made in the 80s. Um, so this is part of uh, a certain period of his life um, from 1981 to 1987 in which these movies um, were created. So something to keep in mind. These don't maybe reflect his earlier work or the work that comes after. So what makes a movie Romarian? Um we're talking about kind of all the different aspects of a production from the acting. I think we see it in his characters. We see it in the way he plots his movies. Um, There's a certain quality to his production methodology that impacts the way the movies end up looking and feeling. I think there's a lot in his camera and editing techniques and sort of how he organizes all of this work, not just into a single movie, but across a series of movies. Um, In this case, two of these films, two of the three films are from a series called the Comedies and Proverbs series, which is um, what he had done in the 1980s. Yeah, there's a little bit. Sorry, just to interrupt there. Like, this is I find this concept you're going to roll your eyes at me, but I do find this concept kind of interesting because uh, I think he is is a little advanced in our idea of a quote unquote 
blank cinematic universe. Like there is a Romare cinematic universe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, this he's not the first filmmaker that I've read be thought about this way, but he's in some ways is one of the earliest. You know, there was a a recent series a, a piece about Hong Sang Soo. Mm-hmm. And how there's a Hong Sang So multiverse or, or cinematic universe, which, you know, this term seems to be coming from the way we talk about Marvel films, for example. But there is a feeling that Romare is not interested in making a single film, but a series of films over a period of time that all feel connected together, which, by the way, might be the way that he is an auteur whether he yeah. claims that or not. Right. Yeah, yeah. There is a connection between the works and the way that they are created. Um, I think a good starting point might be the acting. You know, the the faces, these characters, the people that we see in his movies all feel of a certain universe, the Romare cinematic universe. And um, there's a certain quality to the acting that is consistent from movie to movie. Um what is it that makes a Romarian performance? What is the Romarian performance or the style of acting that one sees in his movies? Uh, briefly, I think what you see is that there is a, there is a, let's say a, a naturalism. I don't feel as though anyone in his movies is gaining 45 pounds and growing their hair out and, you know, the common sort of misconceptions, I should say, of what method acting are. I think Romare casts actors that fit the roles and don't have to do a lot of work to get to that point. I think he's Uh, he's very interested in, in, in the, in the character, the character being close to the actor. Yeah. Essentially like you feel that these characters that they're playing are just extensions of what might already exist in these people that he's cast. Um, And then he's just giving them particular situations that they now have to behave in. And, you know, that really interestingly, I think, segues into the next three things that you've written. So I think I'd like to, if you don't mind, read those three, and then we can discuss them as a a group, All in concert, yeah. Yeah, so other qualities that make his movies uniquely him, and again, this is through the lens of thinking about the fact that he casts actors who feel close to their characters, is that there is what we would call the quote-unquote reasonable character, the character who talks through or around their thoughts and feelings, a character's philosophies and principles put to the test, and the way he constructs his plots, which is suspense building and audience involvement into what is typically considered, quote, small, end quote, or quotidian moments. Why I read these three together is that I think that there is, there's an interiority to Romare films, and that the what you see on screen, which is often simply constructed and photographed mm-hmm. and filmed, is that he's making movies about people in thought about who they are and where they are going and their identities. And this idea of the the character who has had an event in their life, I see my girlfriend with her ex, I encounter a new figure, a new person in my life who I'm close to, but is somewhat the polar opposite of me. And in the third case, you know, again, kind of similar to Renette Mirabelle, I befriend someone who challenges my conceptions of myself and force me to think about my own happiness. Our characters, the plots are built around people coming to understand themselves better Mm -hmm. through discussion, through action, whether that's following someone, uh, you know, through Paris or having strange encounters with waiters or whatever, people are trying to understand themselves. Yeah. And they understand themselves through um, us knowing about their sort of philosophy. Like we see these moments through these discussions where we get a sense of like what it is that they think about the world and what it is that they see in the world and how they proceed through it. Um, And then we get to see scenarios in which that gets tested or they're in conversation with someone that is now testing what they've previously believed. Um, So it's a lot about like, how do we live our life? These philosophies, these principles, um, and only through interaction with others, can we really understand where to what end that will take us? Yeah. And I think that that, plays really strongly into, again, Sean, your list is so well composed, the next three things, 
which you have on your list, which is the interplay of listener and mm-hmm. speaker in conversation, a naturalism in dialogue, which I think, you know, some of it is improvised, some of his work is, is, is written, which I think speaks to his streamlined produ- production me- methodology. So, in, when we're talking about Renette and Mirabelle, there is a, a, stra- a style of, let's say, dialogue. Two styles of dialogue that Romare uses. One is, I, I, the terms that he uses, I don't remember off the top of my head. But basically, it's either a monologue where a character is, speaks and then the other person listening responds. You know, mm-hmm. somewhat like what we're doing with this podcast where you're offering a thought and I'm listening and thinking it through. And the other is a little bit more of a traditional dialogue where characters are speaking line after line to each other and engaging and, and actually having a conversation. And so like interrupting each other. Interrupting. Like, you know, what, yeah. Exactly. Like going, having a little bit of a back and forth. So um, that was referred to as the uh, pivot style. Yes. Uh, which was the one back person says something, the, the, the back and forth. And then the interrupting style is the Pollock style, P-O-L-A-C. Um, it's really... Oh, okay. Ca- so so let's take that back then because I, I screwed that up. The pivot is sort of the more monologue kind of... Yeah style where I will speak to you for a few minutes mm-hmm. and you will then respond uh, yeah. with a, with a no, let's, no I cutting don't off. Impro- monologue. This is tricky. I think that's not correct. The correct right. use of a monologue, but yes, it is more of a, I get a bunch of thoughts out. That's the pivot style. And the Pollock mm-hmm. style is the more back and forth interrupting kind of back and forth style. interrupting. Yeah. I see. Okay, great. And, um, we see this in his work, whether it is written or improvised. Um, one thing about, uh, that we should make clear about Eric Romare is while two of these films have improvisational qualities, he's typically not a filmmaker that does a lot of improvisation. Um, his work does not revolve around the improvisation, and it was just kind of in particular some of these movies where that was the case. Um, one of the things he says about improvisation and when he feels like it's best to use it is when the moment should feel naive. There are certain things that he described in the interview book that can't be written because the minute you start writing it, you adopt a critical point of view. And then you can't just have a naive thing that is said that feels like it's sort of a true thing, right? There's like a truth in the sort of naivete that it really is in the moment that improvisation can only capture. And the minute you try to write that kind of scenario or that kind of interaction, it no lo- it loses the um the quality of what an improvised conversation would be so he was very intentional with like the effect the improvisation wow. would have and when he would want to use it um and then if it is more of these points where they're talking about viewpoints that's when it is very written where it's really about like okay i need them to express x y and z these kinds of you know ideas so this way it could be this conversation that's really interesting for two reasons. One, I think there's something like, pro- again, Romare's sort of started his ph- philosophical thinking as an existentialist. He was mm-hmm. very into the work of John Paul Sartre. Sar- is it Sartre or Sartre? It's Sartre, right? I'm never yeah, going to get this that's, right. That's kind of how we'll end up saying it. What a bunch of hacks I am. What a bunch of hacks. But uh, there's something to the idea of, um, you know, the structured, uh, written, let's say, exp- exposition of one's beliefs versus the naivete of dialogue, right? Like, that feels like real life because real life is improvised, right? Um, on some level. So it feels like that's as much a reflection on the way that people live mm-hmm. as anything else. And I, I think that may be why his films, and again, we're using language, I think that's why maybe sometimes his films feel a little bit, a little bit, in the acting, in the connection between people, like real life actually unfolding, right? Yeah. Um, and I think to the second point, and I'll, I'll just touch on this briefly before we could jump back to watching life unfold. I think what I want to reference is the idea of the naivete of the truth is a very... Mm-hmm. Naivete is a reflection on, I think, three... Really, all of the characters, but yeah. certainly three and of the protagonists. It's in how this we film. see sincerity in right. the film. But Francois is a naive, sincere character in The Aviator's Wife. Renette, I think, is a naive character in Renette and Mirabelle. And mm-hmm. certainly Blanche in Girlfriends and Boyfriends is, yeah. is a naive character. Now, that's not to say the other characters are not naive, but if we were to sort of impose a single characteristic, 
on those three characters, who, by the way, are somewhat the protagonists of those three films. It's that they're a little bit fresh-faced encountering the world. And, they, and they're, they're, right. they're, their experience and the way they see the world is called into question by what happens, by their encounters in these three films. Yeah. And then, um, then now we're creating also a dynamic between characters. So you have characters that are a little, um, have this na uh, naive quality and not naive in a bad way. Um, and he makes it very clear in his writing of like naivete that he does not mean that in like any kind of negative sense. But, and, uh, and then he's, it's kind of in contrast to these characters that exhibit uh, maybe more like practical common sense and so you'll have like yes. a like a like a leah who feels like a little more just like kind of commonsensical or a Mir mirabelle who feels a little more commonsensical or Anne laurie moray um in relation to uh francois in uh, aviator's wife um and then you also have the world weary like uh marie riviere in the aviator's wife um which is again with seeing the way these like characters that like all kind of occupy these like different avenues of like ways we live our life. Yeah, um, there there's a dialectical quality yeah, to the yeah. way that that he hangs certain characteristics on certain characters. Yeah. And I would say and to your point about Anne I'm sorry, Marie Revere being sort of the um world-weary character in the story, there is something very interesting in that idea because I, I think it's very put upon. I think she is one of those people in life who's like, oh, and it's like, you're 25. <laughs> Chill out. You know, yeah. he, he's uh, he's an older filmmaker at this point making characters about, making films about younger, youthful characters. And I think he's aware, uh, not to sound, you know, like unfair to that, those characters, but I think he's a little aware of the folly of youth and that like we, maybe we take things a little too seriously and like, you know, the things that, they're, the things that happen to you but when you're young. never are, judgmental nope. and never making commentary. Well, that's sort of my point. They're, they're yeah. both deadly serious and a little bit ridiculous, which is yeah. by the way, what real life is like. And, and, and on that point of ridiculous, um, he talks about that in uh, his interviews where he likes ridiculous characters. Ridiculous characters feel, feel true to him and they feel like characters in which we can see ourselves but also see one step removed. And I think that's kind of what makes it really engaging for an audience as well. You know, when we think of characters, we think of character development. We see these characters where we can see ourselves doing something maybe similar to Francois if we were in a similar situation or similar to Marie Riviere's character if we were in a similar situation. But we also get to take a little bit of a step back and kind of look at it for what it is. And so there's always this like double engagement, which just like we're in it with them. We understand it, but we can also pull back. That's really interesting. And I think brings us to two to, to next points that you made that I would call sort of related to the idea of the streamlined production methodology. And these are specifically around image and mm -hmm. and, and sorry, image and edit. Uh, and I would actually say that with this first one that I'm going to list, this also relates to sound. So two more things that make a film Romarian is that the camera is always in the right place watching life unfold and there's nothing extraneous. I would also say that's true in the sound. These movies do not get from my point of view, they definitely certainly get mixed, but no one is sitting around adding a sound bed to the layers yeah. and layers that are going on underneath. In fact, there's something, I think I, I've observed this a lot in French cinema from the 50s to the 80s, that, that the sound, sound design is simple and very intentional. And in this case, you're a little bit getting out of the way. So there's nothing extraneous in these images. I would not say they're documentary-like. I think that's a little insulting to documentaries, but they are, let's say, simple. Profoundly simple. Profoundly and in addition simple. to that, not everything has a function in the edit. No luxuriating on pretty shots or profound moments. I want to simplify that even and say that I was watching a, a movie recently um, that that was it's sort of a thriller, and it, it concludes with two characters on a boat, um, and one has snuck on the boat with a gun. It's The Devil's Own with Brad Pitt and Harrison mm -hmm. Ford, and there's a moment where you see Brad Pitt put a gun down on the dash, and... There's, it's an insert shot. So you know in that insert shot, especially in the climax of the film, that we're going to come back to that gun. That gun's going to be important. And that is one tool of success. That, that what, excuse me, that is one tool of suspense where we broadcast what's going to come. Classically, the Chekhovian Chek Chekhov's gun, yep. the gun that's introduced in the, in the first act will be used in the fourth. This is a gun that's introduced at the beginning of a scene will be used later in the scene. What's interesting about Romare 
in these films is that the suspense comes from not knowing as opposed to knowing. So the classic Hitchcockian idea of you put a bomb under a table. Mm-hmm. So, and the audience knows the whole time that there's a bomb that's going to go up is a way to generate suspense. But Romare's way of generating suspense or interest is that you don't really know what's going to happen next, both as an audience member and you're in the same position as the characters, right? And yeah. he wants to take us on a journey with the characters, which, by the way, includes this idea that the shots are not luxuriating, there's nothing pretty, there's nothing mm -hmm. profound. We're just moving through life, which isn't to say that life isn't profound, but I think what's profound in these movies is the way they ask us to reflect upon ourselves, that yeah. we are the filmmaker ultimately making the movie in our own mind. Right, and ultimately he is just, he's trying to tell a story. Like, all of his movies tell a story. It never feels like he's making choices to be artistic for the sake of being artistic. Um, and, uh, you know, we're talking about this, like, this suspense building over here. Um, there is this kind of dramatic irony that he plays with, you know? And because we're seeing a character figure something out, but he doesn't stay totally subjective. Like we, we as an audience know a little bit more. We're with that character the whole time, but we know True. a little bit more. And as that character comes into contact with other characters, we kind of develop the sort of like omnipresent sort of view of it all, which um, can work really well to kind of like mess with us and twist, uh, you know, um, really deliver some like kind of incredible twists, like in the aviator's wife, when we, figure out who the aviator's wife actually is. And like this whole time we've been kind of wrong as well as the character has been, but now they're still confused about it. Um, so like we are able to sort of engage and then um, also understand like how it's all coming together in a way that the characters may not ever reach themselves. Yeah, I think that you're right, especially with the aviator's wife, that there's a little dramatic irony and that we know things before Fran Francois yeah. knows um, them and as well. Also, these uh, repeated elements, too. Like, uh, it starts with a whistle and then we return to a whistle. You know, in Renette and Mirabelle, we hear this electronic music for the credits. And then there's a payoff for that electronic music. So there's a lot of planting and payoff and these kind of very classical, dramatic writing techniques that are being utilized in these movies as well. Yeah, it's a little classical in its storytelling structure. really classical in its storytelling structure. And yet there's uh -huh. something very modern about, like, I'm going to use some classical techniques and I'm going to use some sort of more, like, contemporary, like, what what often now would be perceived as art house, where we're kind of carrying following a character around, right? Yeah. Um, two, two more we should talk about. I think we can touch on these briefly. A structuraling yeah. principle around the work. That feels pretty obvious. It's the fact that each of these comedies and proverbs films has a proverb that begins the film. Like the friend of my friend uh, is the, is that the one for, what is the one for uh, girlfriends and boyfriends? The friends of my friends are my friends. The friends of my yeah. friends are my friends, right? Yeah. So there are these little proverbs or morals or ideas that, that he states at the beginning of the film that sort of, you know, I like those a little more than when a film begins with a quote or like a like a classic quote like a, a an idea that his sort of structural ideas seem to hint at what you should focus on as an audience member where i sometimes mm -hmm. think quotes at the beginning of a movie ask us to um like to tell us what the idea of the movie is that the like it sort of sum up the themes of the movie right. which i find like a little bit annoying um interestingly the most recent example i can think of that is i don't know if you saw nope the Jordan yeah. Peele film, but it yeah, begins yeah. with a quote from the book of Nahum, which is, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a spectacle, which I wouldn't say quite telegraphs the themes of the movie, but certainly tells you something that you're thinking about in the context of the movie. Yeah. Um, sort yeah. of situates your understanding of, of a movie that, you know, not to digress, is a little inscrutable in some very, very exciting ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting the function that this has because it does feel very different. You know, I think there's a sort of profound quality that one is inserting when they start their movie with a quote. It's the like, okay, this is not just a movie. You are about to see this thing. And here is like something serious to ponder as this movie continues. Um, and I don't feel like that is the case over here at all. It is almost just this sort of like 
I mean, he almost describes it as a throwaway sort of thing. Like sometimes he's like, oh, the, the proverb kind of comes to me afterwards. And like, they might have something to do with it. They might not have something to do with it, but it's like a kind of unifying idea around the work in which we're going to watch. And he's being um, so playful. He re- he's being really. playful with it. Yeah, there's a playful quality to it. And it's not this like, you know, like, this is the point that I'm trying to make. This is the theme. And you need to now watch through the lens of this. It is. It has more of this playful quality to it. Um, yeah, for sure. And and yeah. I think that that comes from, you know, also the fact that he's not, with the exception of a few films that come before this, these films feel like they, well, they don't feel like these films take place in contemporary late or mid early to late 80s France, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of reality. There's a sense of place that feels every day that... And and what these films do is they give you the sense that there's something different. Every one of these films sort of has the idea of there's something different about today. Some, you know, my day started in a normal way, and now there's something different about it that sets mm-hmm. the characters off on a quest of some kind. And it, that that something different is something very small. It's like going to uh, your girlfriend's place and seeing someone else leave it, leave their apartment. Go um, walking down the the street, and then um, someone has a flat tire. Right. You know, sitting alone at a cafe and then someone sits with you. It is, it's these little moments that kind of can shake us out of our regular life, you know, shake us out of our patterns, shake us out of our rhythms. If we're open to where these sort of little moments or adventures could potentially take us by yeah, like kind of opening ourselves up to another person. And it sort of gets you thinking a little bit about like what what you how life has changed in those moments, whether we all realize it or not, you know, like in our friendship, if we hadn't worked at the same place, this, there would be no Romare cast podcast or whatever the case might right. be. Right. Yeah. Like there's just, yeah. that's really how life unfolds. I think is, is really something that is, is really interesting. Yeah. And, and I mean, feels that's real. Right. That's kind of like the, the boyfriend's girlfriend's moment of our, of our friendship, you know, tracing this back. It's like, meeting each other and then standing in a hallway talking about movies for an hour um, is that sort of so Blanche and Leah moment that kind of now here we are like many years later, right? Like being open to that and like finding that sort of common ground um, ends up being, you know, what could be seen as a small moment ends up leading to like a really cool friendship. Right. Um, And we kind of see that in these movies. Um, It's really, really dope. It, um, it just really feels like we're seeing life reflected in the way that like these moments in our lives, a movie's being made about that. And it's important. These small moments, the quotidian is important and it is exceptional. Um, and it's worthy of being told. You know, he never saw these movies as small movies, even though the yeah, subjects and, might be small. That is also a... a, a... Uh, the the idea that a film is small is is driven is driven by the history of movies and and what we collectively culturally value um, from our like works of art, especially in the in a yeah. post Romare world, which is the for one sure. that we're very much in. And uh, yeah, that you know, for lack of a better, not to cast aspersions, but in a total domination by by Hollywood filmmaking that feels that there currently is, even though. There's a lot more different types of films being for made sure. Now. Like so that's a little just, simple. Yeah, it's more. Yeah, there's like there's like certain tendencies that exist like across all other realms of 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 what's uh, what's cinema or what is what is movies and what is entertainment. Uh, so in thinking about like the stories and like the way these characters meet other characters, um, things come into their lives, things happen to them. There's a strong element of coincidence, right? Um, and we see that in every single movie. Um, that we've watched over here is there's something that happens once and then it'll happen again. And I think that's a really interesting quality of, of his work. You know, when something happens once, we don't really notice it. It's not important. It hasn't taken on any significance, but once it happens again, it now has meaning or we give it meaning or meaning is created by it, either by the audience or the character's in the film. So like we see these moments of, of coincidence. And um, one of the things about Romare is um, he's a pretty devout Catholic. And I think in these moments of coincidences, we kind of get to see like an interpretation of the way like grace or whatever has effect, um, has an impact in our, in our lives. 
That's so interesting. Yeah, you would never describe him as like a religious figure. Or, right. Excuse me, a religious filmmaker in the way that yeah. say a, a Martin Scorsese is, mm-hmm. or a any of those other filmmakers. It's it's a it's sort of a a piece of him, right? But he certainly yeah. believes in 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 a in a grace, whether that's a Catholic kind of grace or or some other kind of grace. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can identify him as a a very Catholic filmmaker. Yeah. And then the other, that. Oh yeah. No, no. Go ahead. That that um that idea of coincidence also kind of ties to these characters too, because these are characters that are, are reason through everything, right? So if we're looking at sort of like a modern human condition, you know, are we as human beings, like, have we become too reasonable, too rational, too like needing to figure everything out that like, we're not aware, or like, how do we accept when these coincidences or other things that like, maybe can't always be reasoned to, or like these coincidences that feel cosmic or like you said uh, earlier the coincidences that like uh, result in this human comedy you know how do we rationalize that so it is this sort of like reason and then there's this kind of like spiritual quality to the coincidence you know a larger sort of thing that I reflect on in in, in what I love in film um, and this has made me think of two things that I think maybe you know interesting way to sum this up is that really strong storytelling, not that like, not necessarily in a Hollywood sense where I feel like, oh, it's got a three-act structure and, and everything mm-hmm. is, is necessarily like paid off from a character perspective, but he understands how to use repetition and return mm-hmm. really, yeah. really effectively. So again, the Chekhov's gun thing, something that is introduced in the first act comes back in the last act, which I think is a much more elegant and interesting way to think about how things are repeated and how we come back to them. And and the other thing and is that I that I really really speaks to me is my favorite kind of filmmaking uh, in the whole world is filmmaking that suggests really strong interior lives with the minimal amount of exterior kind of work so that mm. we spend a lot of time thinking about what the characters are thinking and what they're doing without ever necessarily being told that outright. You know, even though these characters do talk about the way they feel and the way they are and and they really rationalize their own thoughts, you still feel like you're watching a character go on a journey that's never overstated and is rather built into our experience of them. And that therefore makes us think about like, why is this happening in a really exciting way? Why does Blanche start crying in the field, right? What does Mm -hmm. that suggest about her as a character? And I don't think we ever necessarily get an outright answer to that, but that's really cinematic to me, that the story is unfolding in my... I'm really actively engaged with thinking as opposed to just feeling. And I I deeply care about movies that, like, make me think about what I'm watching and and what those things might mean, as much as necessarily feeling something from the films. It's it's all of it, you know. It engages on a, on a on a level of thinking. It engages on an intellectual level. Um, there's also there's the feeling which comes from so much of the audience involvement and like character identification that we could go through. Um, there's also and the thinking action. and feeling are too often bisected, right? Yeah, thinking can be emotional in the same way. Yeah, that, you know, I think sure. that, that that's really really an important distinction. Right, right. It's the way it's like it's all woven together. And then there's the experiential quality of it, which I think is so much in the like the action driven quality. It's not the navel gazing. Everything is action oriented. Um, one one thing I want to kind of uh, piggyback off of, you mentioned Blanche crying. Um, and this also speaks to his working methods with his actors. So those moments when characters cry are all like exactly planned. And this is something that he works out heavily huh. in rehearsal. So he is a rehearsal heavy Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask you. I, he has to be because there's, the films are so rooted in reality that it feels like the actors have done this 20 times before they actually do it and And that's really important yeah because he's not improvising he's improvised to get to a point but then it's structured then it's structured and it's rehearsed and the actors know they're blocking generally but he gives them some freedom but they know what they're supposed to do they've worked it all out and they've tried a lot of things in rehearsal one of the things about him too is he hates waste and so he'll often film one or two takes, usually doing a second take if there was a technical issue or there was something that could be improved upon. But typically, he tries to keep it really economical. And Marie Riviere was very proud of the fact that she could cry on demand. Like, if she needed to cry when Romare needed her to cry, which there's a lot of in, like, The Aviator's Wife when she's kind of um, 
having that moment with Francois in her in her apartment. Um, it's a it's there's a lot of credit to the actors and the ways that he was able to work with them, but it's all done before. You know, and this also gets things makes me think about something. We could talk about this forever, but what we value in acting, uh, mm-hmm. which is often we value the biggest performance and the sort of most unhinged performance. And like the mm-hmm. more you can emote, the better an actor you are. But there's something really, really powerful about and and so craft driven by someone who's like, yeah, I get one take and I can cry on demand. Like that's a professional performer. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's driven and- by the craft and not the the bigness of it. Like you can't picture some of these performance in like an Oscar reel sort of like montage. You know, it and doesn't work all in that way, but, performances. but yeah. this is, yeah, this is to me what like a great performance looks like. And it sort of speaks to the way that he speaks. He does not speak against, I should say, but he stands in contrast to a kind of industrialized cinema. And mm-hmm. maybe he his work, especially in this period, feels closer to like an early 20th century kind of the industry is not centered around a specific place. It is sort of auteurs, you know, with studios making their own little projects outside of the sort of bubble of Hollywood or the bubble of not French cinema, because, you know, that's not really, you know, but he's he's off doing his own thing, which I think is really, really exciting and which is to strive for. Yeah. And it's it's he's doing something different from all the other filmmakers he grew up with in the 1960s. You know, some of those filmmakers have gone on to be like the big directors of French cinema. Um, You know, Truffaut is kind of like making big movies. Claude Chabrol is making these big thrillers. Um, Godard is... Good point. um, Yeah, Godard's on his like second birth, um, you know, where he's like, uh, not making the kind of uh, more esoteric political films for television that he did in the 70s. And he's making movies that play to audiences in theaters again. And Romare is kind of the indie filmmaker of that whole yeah. bunch. He's the one that's making movies, still trying to make movies as cheap as possible um, with pretty simple means. I think that also maybe he understood that his cinema was best, his ability to make films was best served as keeping it small and tight. And that, by the way, makes yeah. him, I think, a great producer. Oh, yeah. He understands so, the limits of his, both his, what he can do and his commercial ability. Uh, commercial prospects. I mean, what an important point for, I mean, to be so clear eyed about who you are as a filmmaker and the kinds of movies that you make. Like so many people think like, okay, well I have to make this kind of story. I want to make this intimate story, but I also want this to be like a huge movie that appeals to X, Y, and Z audience that like gets into this festival. And that's going to make like, you know, like sell to a 24. And like, it's easy to start to think of like those kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, the delusions of grandeur. And then the movie ends up what could be like a very simple movie ends up becoming maybe bigger than it needs to be. um, Because of this sort of emphasis you, you place on it in the marketplace. But he very much saw that his movies are better on smaller screens, need more time to play out, and like maybe play for like 12 weeks and develop a word of weeks, mouth. A year, a year. A, 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 yeah, play out for like a year, right? I, um, I sort of said that aggressively. I was like, nope, Sean, yeah, yeah. a year. <laughs> right, 12 weeks isn't enough. And he compares it in the in the book to, um, you know, it's not a Jean-Paul Belmondo movie that is going to like make all of its money in the first weekend, which by the way, like, right, Jean-Paul Belmondo is not just the actor from Godard's 60s movies. He was like one of the biggest fucking French actors um, of all time. Like he was like Bruce Willis, essentially. Um, so yeah, it's his movie is not the Jean-Paul Belmondo movie. His movie is, um, it's the Eric Romare movie. It's the Eric Romare movie. And I think that that right there is, yeah, we could go forever, but Eric Romare is Eric Romare. What makes a, um, what, okay. In conclusion, what makes an Eric Romare, Romare movie Romarian is that it's an Eric Romare movie. And, and, and this is going to be something, one. there's only one, and it's singular. And this is something that we'll have to revisit every few movies. You know, we're, this is something that we'll constantly have to be adding on to, you know, after yeah, the next set of movies. This, we should post this list somewhere and make it available to the public. Uh, two yeah. things very quickly, sort of technical ons and ends that Sean pointed out. There's no, there's largely no music in his movies. It's either at the beginning and the end of the film, and any music that you hear throughout is largely diegetic, meaning it's coming from a source on the screen, whether that's a radio or someone playing a song or the music in the back of a bar, whatever the case is. And the other, do you want to talk very briefly about 
the other uh, technical odd and end that you pointed out that that is very interesting. Yeah, this is something that I'd um, only noticed with his movies, um, watching him this time around, and made me really think about establishing shots. You know, when we're when we think of establishing shots, people typically think of the wide shot. You know, establish the larger environment. You know, show like the square where everybody is. But when he establishes locations, when he cuts to a new scene, he will cut to a sign. And meaning a sign that literally says something about where we are. A sign that literally says with language that says like yes, whatever it happens to be. Like we are at the train station. We are at this cafe. Um, We're at Old Navy. We are at we are at Old Navy, and it's like oh right, like that's the most direct kind of way to establish a location. It's like no, here it is, and it's very concrete. Here is this actual physical space. It's not the abstract of a train station area. It's like, no, we are at this specific train station in Paris. Here is the sign. And then we cut to Francois walking out of the the train station. But there's a real sense of actual location. um, And it's not just the establishing shot as like a pretty environment shot. It's no, this is the establishing shot of here is the train station. This is where we are. Then we continue the story. And where we are is that we are at the end of the first season of Romare cast. Season one, the summer of Romare, edition one, because there could be more of these if we keep this going, is now concluded. Um, This has been really fun. We sort of started to do this impulsively, and the show feels as though it's taking a shape. And so we're going to take a little... I guess it's a break, an interlude, a, a moment of quiet, and sort of establish what the next season will be. The next season will probably be of a similar length. We'll cover a few films and we'll try to frame them through a lens. We don't know what that's going to be, candidly, because we don't have a repertory series to point to the way that we did with this season. But we're going to go reflect and come back and and come back at you soon. It's not going to be, you're not waiting a year for another episode, but we will be back soon with more delicious Eric Romare content. What I'm really excited about, Liam, is that um, we're kind of curating a little bit over here. We're programming, you know, where you have to kind of think about what is now, like if Summer of Romare and these three movies is our, the center point of our Romare map, where do we go next? And um, I think it's going to be, if you're following along with the show and you're watching these movies from the very beginning, um, we're going to try to craft like an interesting journey through the work of Eric Romare. That's going to feel like it makes sense. And we're kind of moving along with him using this summer of Romare as a starting point. So um, that's going to be really interesting to kind of figure out like what aspect do we focus on next and where or how does that relate back to what we just did? And I think an organizing principle for me, and we'll see how useful this actually is or possible is, is I want to be able to try to look at like, are there series going on in the world around Eric Romare? Mm-hmm. What what films are available for a either for free or for a small price online? Mm-hmm. We want to try to make it as ac- as accessible as possible, both in being able to get the films, but also in you know if I don't know Metrograph decided to do the fall, you know the uh, Romare, the autumn of Romare, I would cover those films, right? Whatever yeah. the case might be. So we'll we'll sort of have we'll have a think on it, and we'll get back to you. We'll be in touch soon. Don't go yeah. away. Tell your friends. Do you have, do you listen do you listen to this podcast? If you listen to this podcast, please please tell your friends about it. You should also follow us on our various platforms. I'm at Liam G Billingham on Twitter and I'm Liam Billingham on Letterboxd where I am making sure to review these films or linking to this podcast. Follow me there. And uh, my name is The Brown Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and that's my name on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. Um, Please let us know what you're thinking about these episodes, any comments and questions you might have as a result of what you've heard in these, um, because we'd love to incorporate that stuff into our future episodes and also like engage in the conversation and have these conversations offline as well about the works of Eric Romare. I would love to do a, 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 a mailbag episode, voice yeah. memos. You know, send us a voice yeah. memo, tell us your thoughts. You know, um, I would love to hear uh, from folks, um, you know, here's a prompt for, for anyone that's still listening, which is what is another filmmaker that you think 
has Romerian tendencies. I'd love to reflect on that and maybe even cover a filmmaker who maybe feels influenced by Eric Romer. There's a few we could talk about here, but I would rather hear from you as an audience member. And maybe we can build a episode around that as we did on Uberbusters years ago about elephant and termite art. And the guest for that episode was Sean Senevaratna. That was fun. That was, that was my fun. first foray into podcasting. I know, and now and, look uh, at you. You did it. You did it. You're here. Uh, thanks, everybody. You remember all the spreadsheets I had? Oh, my God. It was wild. <laughs> you've, you've really come a long way, my friend. You're doing great. Um, this has been Romare Cast. This has been Romare Cast, a podcast about Eric Romare. I was an am Liam Billingham. And thank you all so much for listening. This has been a lot of fun just getting to talk about Eric Romare and movies and art. And my name is Sean Senevaratna. And thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Love you guys. Love you, Sean. Adieu. 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 He remember. He did it. He did it this time. Look at that.